good afternoon, everyone. I hope uh, you can hear us well uh, from, um, for this uh, webinar that is going to focus on declaration of compliance and the flow of information in the food contact supply chain. We are uh, going to refer to declaration of compliance using uh, often the acronym DOC, so that uh, stands for declaration of compliance. Um, just an introduction for those who do not know Keller and Heckman. Keller and Heckman is a law firm that has its headquarters in uh, Washington, D.C. The office was open uh, in 1962. And we have other offices. We are calling in Hazel, Tuna, and myself from the Brussels office of Karen Hackman, which was opened in 1992. And we have other offices in uh, the US, San Francisco, but also in Shanghai and in Paris. Uh, we are a medium-sized medium uh, law firm with 75 attorneys. Um, uh, but we do have also other regulatory specialists and paralegals. Uh, we have, uh, and that's the specificity of our firm, we have in-house scientists, a total number of 22, um, with different areas of specialization, going from toxicology to chemistry, biotechnology, uh, and so forth. Um, if we focus on the main uh, practices of our Brussels office, um, we, have, uh, we are representing the, the food packaging team here, but we have also a chemical control team as well as a food team. We, uh, we have uh, the, probably the largest uh, food packaging group um, worldwide with 12 full-time uh, partners dealing with food contact on a daily basis. And Hazel O'Keefe is one of the partners presenting here today, uh, as well as myself, Rashida Samai. And we have, uh, we are helped, all these partners are helped by scientists in our food packaging team. We have uh, 15 scientists, um, among which two in the Brussels office, and Tunatier is one of our full-time uh, full scientists. Um, this is unique to Callan Heckman, even though some other law firms are uh, having um, some scientists, no other firm that we are aware of have such a large uh, a practice group uh, in terms of partners, attorneys, or uh, scientists. And we are all seconded also by associates. We have uh, 19 associates, two, uh, two in the Brussels office, that uh, also are full-time dedicated to uh, the practice group. What we do to our clients, we typically uh, do compliance assessment of their product issue opinion letters. We even draft for them uh, declaration of compliance that they, they can use afterwards uh, putting the, the content of uh, our draft in their letterhead. We also a petition for new scientists, and we have, uh, sorry, for new substances. <laughs> um, we submit petition at EU level, but also at national level uh, in the US, China, Japan, Mercosur. You know that in Japan, they are changing their legislation, going towards a positive list system, so this is really something that we do. 
Uh, and our, our colleague scientists are playing a key role in uh, the preparation of these petitions, as well as the test protocols that we are using to develop, to, to generate, for, the, for our clients to generate data uh, to support opinion letters, but also petitions. We do some GAP, GMP auditings when this is uh, necessary, and also advise clients when there are product recall issues and liability issues. Uh, when this is need needed, especially when developing nat uh, national or EU legislation or US legislation or other legislation in other jurisdictions, we are preparing advocacy papers for our clients to support their position. So now turning to the agenda of this uh, uh, workshop that again I'm going to present with Hazel O'Keefe and Tunas here. I'm going to start presenting on the basics uh, on DOCs, what the declaration of compliance are, why you need to issue those, what is the legal basis for issuing those, and who is responsible for issuing those uh, DOCs. And then we are going to dig into more the specifics of the subject, talking about the content of DOCs. This would be presented by Adel, who will give you tips also in preparing your own DOCs, but reviewing incoming DOCs from your suppliers. And then we would uh, look at the special issues, um, technical issues that uh, Tuna is going to, to present that are relevant when you uh, are drafting your uh, DOC and reviewing also DOCs uh, from your suppliers. And finally, we will uh, finish uh, by discussing liability in case something goes wrong. Of course, uh, no one would uh, like to, uh, to be uh, facing such liability issues, but it's really important to be aware of the implications when you are issuing DOCs. So starting with the basics on DOCs. What is a declaration of compliance in other jurisdictions, like in the US, you may call that differently, like customer assurances. You know that in China, they call that same document as declaration of compliance. For, so for the EU, a declaration of compliance is a written document that a company is issuing, confirming the compliance of its product with the food contact legislation, and the product can be a substance an intermediate uh, material or the final article. Um, those terms, uh, food contact substance, intermediate materials, final article or final material, they are not really defined in the legislation themselves. There is a guidance document issued by the Commission on Plastics that uh, defines those documents. In terms of applicable food contact legislation, uh, you uh, need to comply uh, with the framework regulation, the GMP regulation, the implementing, other implementing measures such as the plastics regulation if you are manufacturing plastics, recycled plastics, and uh, so forth. So what is in yellow in this, um, on this slide is really the EU legislation. In blue, this is, the, this is the identification of the materials that are not subject to harmonization at EU level at this time. Uh, for instance, paper, paperboard, silicone, rubber, uh, printing inks, and so forth. They are regulated at national level, noting that for printing inks, uh, everybody knows that at um, 
at EU level, there is no legislation, not either at national level, and everybody is referring to the Swiss legislation. But you have legislation, for instance, on national legislation on coatings, uh, rubber, adhesives, uh, cork, and so forth. Um, when you uh, deal with national legislation, you have also to factor in the mutual recognition that needs to be applied uh, in some cases because you cannot really comply with all uh, sets of national legislation. And therefore, this is also an important aspect that should be reflected in your DOCs. We are not going to dig into all this uh, legislation given that the focus of this webinar is going to be on um, declaration of compliance. And why declaration of compliance are, have been made, um, have been required in uh, legislation? This is because of um, the complexity of the supply chain and this slide is intended to illustrate this complexity um, and the need because there are so many different actors in the supply chain, different chemicals that are being used, the flow of information throughout the supply chain is uh, really uh, important. The aim of uh, the DOCs, um, this is really not mentioned in the, in, the, in the legislation itself, this is really set out also and explained in the guidance of the Commission on the DOCs for Plastics. The aim of DOCs is to confirm compliance, the compliance work that the operator has done on its product when it is placing it on the market. And it, has, it aims also at providing additional information to the customers, the downstream users, to allow them to do their own compliance uh, check. And the overall goal is to make sure that ultimately the final article, final product being placed on the market is compliant. So in terms of legal basis for uh, the declaration of compliance, you need to uh, look, uh, there are two sets of legal basis. You need to look at EU legislation, but also at national legislation. When you look at EU legislation, there is Article 16 of the framework regulation, which is again the overarching legislation that uh, provides that specific measures that are adopted at EU level must include a DOC requirements. And this is what the Commission has done in adopting the implementing measures on, the plasti on plastic, ceramic, regenerated cellulose, active and intelligent packaging, but also in the BPA regulation. There, there are some mandatory requirements for issuing DOCs that are applicable for substance manufacturers, intermediate manufacturers, and final article manufacturers. So now you, 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 you know that we do not have harmonization on all food contact materials. And this is why the framework regulation authorizes member states for, with respect to the non-harmonized materials and articles to also impose uh, requirements for a DOC at national level. Um, for instance, Belgium has imposed in its order of 1992 the obligation to issue DOCs for all food contact materials. They have including, included in an annex the, an outline of what they want to see, really basic information that is taken more or less from the plastics, uh, the annex, annex 4 uh, 
uh, to the plastics regulation, but you have other member states that have imposed um, mandatory DOCs. That's the case of uh, France that has set up, uh, uh, made this mandatory in its decree of 2007. Uh, you have other uh, member states like Denmark, in the Netherlands, it is mandatory for the materials that are being regulated under the Dutch Packaging and Consumer Articles Regulation. So it's important to keep in mind that there are DOT requirements also at national level, and it, we emphasize that because we, we hear from time to time uh, some of the clients are arguing that there are no DOT requirements for coatings, for instance they are at national level, so you need to pay attention to that. And there are member states that do not really specifically require DOCs, but consider that it is best practice to, uh, to issue DOCs. In this um, regard, it's important also to point out that there have been calls for making mandatory DOCs for all food contact materials. These calls came from different stakeholders at EU level, but also from the European Parliament in its resolution of, 19, uh, of 2016. Sorry. So when you talk about DOCs, you have also to keep in mind that uh, it's an official document that the company is issuing, and therefore it is triggering liability. Um, when you make a statement, you need to make sure you can back this statement up. And it is mandatory to keep uh, in-house supporting documentation uh, that you can hand over to member states upon request. So we very um, often hear um, or some clients asking whether they are obligated to provide this uh, supporting information to their downstream users? And the answer to this question is no. Companies are not obligated to uh, provide supporting documentation um, to their downstream users. And this supporting do documentation can be anything that you have used to support compliance. That, could, that can be uh, your own assessment of the composition of the product and the conclusion that the composition meets the positive listing requirements or any test reports that you have generated uh, to ensure or verify compliance, but also includes the DOCs from your own suppliers. This, all this is part of the supporting documentation that you, keep, you need to keep uh, on file. Uh, one question that we uh, very often get is uh, the question on whether there is a validity time or, or period for the DOC. Uh, the legislation at EU level does not set any specific uh, time for the DOC. Uh, the the plastic regulations only generally say that you need to renew the DOC when there have been substantial changes in the composition of the product, for instance, that would alter the previous statement and require an additional a renewed statement. Or if you have new, new scientific data that would lead you, for instance, to, um, to revise the safety limits that you have determined for one of the NIAS that is identified in your DOC, when you have new data that require to revise that limit, you you, need to, uh, you would need to uh, renew your DOC. 
Uh, it's important to keep in mind also that certain member states have established a validity period for DOCs. That's, for instance, the case of uh, Belgium that has set uh, a five years validity period for the DOCs. Obviously, also in Belgium, if there is any reason as to why you would need to update um, the, the DOC before the expiry of that five-year period, then you need to, to uh, do it. And the Commission advised also to, to do an update of the DOCs when there has been a change, for instance, in the applicable legislation. So the form under which these DOCs need to be delivered, the legislation does not say anything about that. Uh, there is a gu that guidance of the Commission, uh, the guidance document of the Commission that states that um, the DOC does not need to be uh, following systematically each shipment of the product that you are delivering to the same, uh, repeatedly to the same uh, customer. So you, you issue it once and then uh, you don't need to re resend it all the time unless obviously there have been some changes and updates to that DOC. Uh, even though the, the legislation is silent on that, um, the guidance document of the Commission stresses that you can really deliver the DOC in paper form or electronic format and you can, if your customer is in an agreement with that, you can even uh, uh, advise that it can be downloaded from your website. So in terms of who is uh, supposed to issue DOCs, these are operators that are involved in the supply chain at marketing stages other than retail stage. That uh, refers to uh, typically the manufacturer uh, that is based in the EU, the manufacturer of a substance, intermediate product, or final article. These are uh, subject to DOC requirements. Also the importer uh, for, of uh, food contact materials from third countries. Um, based on the legislation, the importer is really treated in the same fashion as the manufacturer of a food contact uh, article. So when he imports a product, he needs uh, to fulfill all, all the requirements that the manufacturer is responsible for when it is based in the EU. So, for instance, it needs to make sure the product is fully compliant with the applicable legislation. It needs to detain all the supporting documentation for this third country product, which requires, obviously, cooperation between the importer and its suppliers that are based outside the EU. The distributor also is subject to DOC requirements. Um, and in the guidance document of the Commission, it really sets um, out that he has to forward the information from the suppliers uh, of, the, of the materials he is distributing with a cover letter indicating that he's only a distributor and it has not done anything on the products that are being supplied to him, or he can issue his own DOC based on the supplier's statement, but obviously if he does that, he needs to be careful as to making sure he can really uh, incorporate all re the relevant information that the suppliers have provided him with. Just one slide on this, uh, the possible implication of Brexit. Uh, as soon as uh, Brexit is effective and the UK uh, is out of the European Union and out of the 
custom union, then whenever you would be imported, importing into the EU product from the UK, you would be uh, acting as if you are importing product from a third country because from that moment the UK would become a third country and therefore you would really need to take the same care uh, with respect to these imported products from the UK uh, as with other uh, third country products. Now, Hazel is going to detail the content of the DOCs and advising on tips for preparing and reviewing DOCs. Okay, so... Okay, I'm going to briefly um, detail, uh, first of all, as, as a basic starting point, you know, what is set out in the plastics regulation with respect to the contents of the declaration of compliance. And obviously, some of this information is quite straightforward, and then there are some points that are, are more complex that I'm going to focus on in a bit more detail. So, Annex 4 of the plastics regulation, um, you know, sets out the information that must be included in the declaration of compliance for plastic food contact materials. Now, while, of course, the plastics regulation is only regulating plastic food contact materials, much of these same um, types of information may need to be passed down the supply chain in, in, for other types of food contact materials. So, it's always a good reference. So first of all, with respect to content, of course, basic information like the, with the identity and the address of the business operator uh, issuing the declaration of compliance is, of course, crucial, as well as uh, details of the particular food contact material in question. So this could be, for example, the, the trade name, as well as identification of the particular polymer to which the DOC applies. Uh, of course, it's important to, to uh, date the DOC, particularly as, as Rashida noted that some member states have, uh, you know, they have time limits on the declarations of compliance. Uh, broadly, it mentions that there should be a confirmation of compliance with the relevant requirements of the, of the framework regulation. Uh, the relevant requirements of the framework regulation would be, for instance, Article 3 of the framework regulation, uh, in that a food contact material must, must not uh, pose a danger to human health or bring about a deterioration uh, in, in the organoleptic properties of the food, such as taste or odor, or, it, or in some other way alter the composition of the food. But of course, depending on where, what stage you are in the supply chain, uh, of course, you may not be able to ensure that all of these requirements are met and, and may need to pass on information down the supply chain. In this respect, other relevant requirements are, for instance, traceability requirements and labeling requirements um, of the framework regulation. And also, there is a general requirement that if you know, there is new information that comes to light in relation to your food contact substance that would impact on the EFSA safety evaluation of the substance, this should also be notified uh, to the European Commission. Otherwise, um, what would be important, particularly for, for non-harmonized uh, food contact materials such as silicones or rubber, adhesives, coatings, would be to include a, a confirmation of compliance with member state legislation. Uh, and this, of course, is also relevant to some components of plastic materials and articles, which I'll speak a bit later. 
again, this, not may, this may not always be possible uh, because there are so many member states uh, maintaining national requirements. And as already mentioned by Rashida, this is where the, the principle of mutual recognition kicks in. So the, the contents of a declaration of compliance can get a bit more challenging uh, when you're considering uh, the adequate information regarding substances used or their degradation products subject to specific restrictions or specifications. Because, of course, the term adequate information is, is quite a vague term, and it really needs to be assessed on a case-by-case -case basis, uh, depending on where you are in the supply chain and how much information you have regarding the end-use application. And I'm going to elaborate on, on this particular point uh, shortly, but in the first instance, I, I will just run through the main points in the Declaration of Compliance. Another uh, somewhat vague concept is adequate information regarding uh, dual-use additives which are subject to a restriction on food, in food. And of course, again, this may depend on, on how much information you have regarding the end-use application. Other uh, specifications uh, really depend on how you establish compliance uh, of the food contact material. It's possible that there, there would be uh, limits on the types of food or times or temperatures if you conducted specific migration testing. Uh, and also, it's, it's, it's necessary to, to uh, specify the highest food contact surface area to volume of ratio covered by the DOC. The, the standard EU surface area to volume of food assumption is six decimeter squared per kilogram of food, and, and this is often used in, in calculations, for example. So this may need to be specified in the DOC. And finally, uh, the annex to the plastics regulation mentions that if you are relying on a functional barrier, then the functional barrier should also comply with the requirements of the plastics regulation. So that means, for example, if you uh, if you're using uh, an unlisted monomer or, or unlisted additive, it may be possible to do this in compliance with the uh, plastics regulation if the substance in question is separated from the, the food by a barrier layer, uh, the migration is non-detect at a detection limit of 10 ppb, it's not carcinogenic, mutagenic or toxic to reproduction or a substance in nanoform except for vinyl chloride monomer, which was, which was almost always comply with the restrictions set out in the plastics regulation. Okay, many of you may already be familiar with the, um, the Commission's uh, guidance document on the Declaration of Compliance, uh, but nonetheless, I've included a full reference to this document here because it elaborates quite a bit on, on many of the basic concepts set out in the plastics regulation. Uh, and I'm also going to touch on, I guess, particular problems that companies may face when, when drafting declaration of compliance, as in they need to balance the need to pass informa adequate information down the supply chain with their concern that they want to keep any um, confidential information uh, to themselves and, and not pass it on to, to uh, customers. So the, the guidance document on the Declaration uh, of Compliance was, was published back in 2013. It's important to keep in mind that it's not a legally binding document, but nonetheless, it, it, it is very helpful in that it contains much more detail than the plastics regulation, and it may often be referred to also by enforcement authorities at member state level 
when they're interpreting the terms of the plastics regulation or indeed when they're assessing uh, whether other types of food contact materials comply with the applicable requirements. So again, it goes into uh, quite a bit of detail. It, it defines the, a chemical substance, uh, or rather I should say gives examples of what chemical substances are, like monomers, additives, acepolymerization, etc. It also uh, gives examples of what are intermediate plastic materials. This could be, for example, plastic resins or pellets, or even plastic uh, preforms that need to be blown into their, their final shape. Uh, it, uh, it also addresses the intermediate non-plastic materials, such as these are basically printing inks, adhesives, and coatings. Uh, the, the plastics regulation, of course, is not a measure that's specifically, specifically regulating uh, printing inks, coatings, and adhesives at the EU level. However, for example, uh, to the extent that you have a printed uh, plastic material that's coated and bound together by adhesives, then the requirements of the plastics regulation apply to the final plastic material or article. So, for example, if you're using a, subject, a substance subject to a specific migration limit in both a coating, printing ink, adhesive, and in the plastic itself, ultimately uh, the SML would have to be met in the final plastic material or article, regardless of where uh, the migration comes from. And also, it defines a, a final material article. Uh, again, it also is quite helpful in that it addresses uh, in some detail uh, each operator in the supply chain. It defines uh, who they are and what their roles are. So that's also uh, quite a useful reference. Importantly, it sets out uh, obligations of the uh, different operators in the supply chain. As Rashid already printed out, the declaration uh, of compliance needs, needs to be uh, supplied at all stages of the supply chain apart from the retail stage. Um, so, although there may be other obligations, for, for example, for uh, the, the users of the food contact material, but again, that is, that is very helpful in that it, it more clearly defines what the, the role of each operator is in the supply chain. So I think even more importantly are the, the general principles set out in the guidance document. And um, these, are, these are very important to keep in mind when you're preparing a declaration of compliance or reviewing a declaration of compliance. And notably, the, the point that's stressed the most is that the, all business operators in the supply chain, uh, from the manufacturers of the, the starting substances to the manufacturer of the final uh, material or article, uh, carry an obligation to help ensure compliance. So that responsibility doesn't lie only on the manufacturer of the final material or article. Because, of course, business operators at the very beginning of the supply chain have information on the, the types of substances used, uh, but they may not have details on the, the end-use application. And by contrast, the manufacturer of the final article knows exactly what the end-use application is, but may not have, have deep formulation details of the product. So it's essential that there is um, cooperation in the supply chain in order to ensure that the final material or article complies with the relevant requirements. Um, 
Again, it stressed that uh, good manufacturing practice must be uh, complied with uh, throughout the supply chain, although, of course, pursuant to the uh, GMP regulation, the manufacturer of starting substances is, is excluded from GMP. Although, of course, starting substances, which includes monomers, but also additives and other substances, they must be of a suitable purity and technical quality for use in food contact applications. Again, you may see from time to time general disclaimers in a declaration of compliance, and, and these are not acceptable unless, of course, the company has passed on the full formulation of its product together with details of all impurities that might need to be uh, further risk assessed. Uh, and again, as I, as I stressed earlier, uh, it must be ensured that any components used are of a suitable quality for use in the particular end-use application that's envisaged. The Commission has stressed that uh, compliance work should be conducted as high up the supply chain as possible. Uh, in order to avoid that the same type of compliance work is being conducted again and again by, by different parties in the supply chain, but of course, for this to be possible, there has to be cooperation in the, in the supply chain. So if, for example, the, the polymer producer is conducting compliance work or maybe conducting testing, he or she would need to have details of the end-use application. And the guidance also stresses that the business operator uh, introducing any substance into a product um, listen, is responsible for, for that substance and for any impurities or reaction products generated by that substance. So if a company is introducing a new substance and not, is not in a position to ensure that impurities of the substance would not pose a safety concern, then in that case it may be necessary to pass information down the supply chain uh, to customers so that they would be in position uh, to conduct this assessment uh, with their greater, greater knowledge of the particular end-use application in question. So again, although the Commission recommends more generally that uh, compliance work be conducted as high as possible up the supply chain, compliance work cannot, can of course be delegated, but if, it, if it's delegated, the delegation was very specific. The, your customer must know exactly what they need to do. For example, they need to verify compliance of, a, of specific migration limits for tree identified substances. Uh, but if you simply state in, in a declaration of compliance that um, you know that there. That, that your product complies with the, you know, the framework regulation and you don't provide any details regarding substances subject to specific migration limits, then it's your responsibility to ensure that the specific migration limits are met because your customer won't be in a position to conduct this work. Okay, so there are many challenges with the declaration of compliance and I've just selected a few here that I thought might be of particular interest. Uh, I think one of the main questions that we often get is, is you know, ways to protect uh, trade secret information but still complying with the, the obligations under the plastics regulation or other legislation. Uh, another question is how to address uh, dual-use additives, that is those you know, additives to plastics or other materials that are also uh, authorized additives uh, in food. 
uh, and how to address nanomaterials. That question does arise from, from time to time, uh, particularly as there's, there's no definition of, of the term nanomaterial in the food contact legislation. Uh, of course, non-intentionally added substances is, is becoming a really hot topic, and that applies more broadly, of course, to impurities and reaction products. And how to, how to address these in the Declaration of Compliance can be challenging. We're sometimes asked as well about member state legislation, you know, whether it needs to be addressed and what, what is the best way to address this. So again, uh, with respect to trade secret information, uh, you know, I set out some suggestions here, but of course this may, this may vary depending on, on where you are in the supply chain. So I've given the example of a polymer or resin manufacturer because this company is in, in an intermediate uh, stage in the supply chain and may have details of the raw materials used to manufacture the product, but may not have details uh, of the end-use application. But at the same time, uh, there may be certain sensitive formulation uh, details that the manufacturer of the polymer does not want to pass on to his customers. So there are a number of ways in, in which this could potentially be addressed. Uh, I'm going to briefly uh, outline the first four options, and then uh, Tuna here will actually speak in, in more detail about the how to conduct calculations or testing uh, in support of these options. So one option could be to uh, conduct worst-case migration calculations of substances, uh, assuming that 100% of the substance used will migrate to the food. Uh, in that case, of course, if, if the result is, is favorable and considerably below the specific migration limit, you may be in a position to take the decision not to pass on uh, information regarding that particular substance. Uh, mathematical modeling may be possible as an alternative for some polymers if the results of the worst case migration calculations are too high. Alternatively, for, for monomers, for example, if you have measured the residual amounts, it may be possible to reach a favorable conclusion based on calculations. And if, if that doesn't work and you still don't want to pass on information regarding the identities of substances, um, migration testing would be uh, a, a possibility because, again, it would give a more realistic um, well, feedback regarding the potential migration of the substance. But what's critical to note in, in all of these four options is that the parameters on which your calculations or uh, your, your migration testing are based must be included in the Declaration of Compliance. Um, and notably, for example, for a worst-case migration calculation, you may need to include the maximum surface area to volume of food ratio covered, or maybe the maximum thickness covered uh, by, the, by the calculation, uh, and, and perhaps even the den density of, of the polymer in question. So that way your customer will be put on alert um, that if you know, the, the, their induce is not covered by the parameters set out in your declaration of compliance, then they may need to come back to you or, or alternatively conduct uh, further work. But again, Tuna will speak about all this in, in further detail. Of course, to the extent that uh, substances in your, in your formulation are, are not confidential, you, you may decide to, to set them out in the DOC or alternatively 
uh, it may be that the, the level of migration is simply too high based on testing, so it's, you may need to decide that it's necessary to pass on information down the supply chain. It, of course, if, it's, if the substance is confidential, uh, another option would be to enter into a, a non-disclosure agreement or confidentiality agreement with your customer, which would provide you with an additional degree of assurance uh, that the confidentiality of your substance will be maintained as such. And finally, uh, one option which we're, we're frequently involved in is a situation whereby a, a company uh, wishes us to evaluate a, a food contact material. Uh, they may need to get information from their supplier, but this information is deemed to be confidential by the supplier. So the supplier would be often be prepared to provide it to, uh, to us or to another law firm or a laboratory on a confidential basis. And in that situation, we could do the, the uh, compliance or safety evaluation and provide the customer with the conclusions of the evaluation. And in that way, the customer is assured that the, the material in question complies with the food contact legislation, but the supplier does not need to provide any confidential information to the customer. So uh, the Commission uh, has made some quite detailed uh, statements in its guidance document on, on when information uh, needs to be passed down the supply chain, noting again that this is a guidance document and the need to pass down information would need to be assessed on a case-by-case -case basis. And it mentions really that the non-disclosure of the identity of the substance should be uh, the exception rather than the rule. But nonetheless, it goes on to cite some examples of when it would not be necessary to uh, reveal the identity of a substance. And in one of those situations is uh, where uh, the business operator can confirm that um, you know, one-tenth of the specific migration limit or other restriction would not be exceeded up to a particular thickness or uh, concentration in the blend. And of course, again, in that situation, uh, all the parameters on which that uh, declaration is based would need to be set out in the declaration of compliance. And this one-tenth figure is based on the assumption that there may be up to uh, 10 layers in a material containing the same substance. But while it's not legally binding, nonetheless, if you're able to establish that the, the migration of a substance from your material is less than um, one-tenth of the SML, this would strongly support the position that it would not be necessary to reveal the identity uh, to your customer. Another question that comes up is how to address uh, dual-use additives. The Commission uh, defines these quite broadly in its uh, guidance documents. So a substance authorized as an additive in plastics and at the same time as a food additive or a food flavoring, regardless of its pur purity or whether the substance is subject to a, a restriction in food or in plastic food contact materials. Uh, the, the plastics regulation mentions that adequate information must be passed down the supply chain, but doesn't go further than that. And there's, there's no uh, threshold specified uh, above which information must be passed on, unlike some of the national legislation. So, for example, in the Netherlands, for non-harmonized materials, it's mentioned that if uh, in, in the case where uh, a dual-use additive, the migration of a dual-use additive does not exceed uh, 120 of the restriction on food, 
um, then the identity does not need to be passed on. But again, this really needs to be looked at on a case-by-case -case basis, depending on the information you have on the end-use application. So moving along quickly to substances in nanoform, again, just to recall that there is a general requirement in the plastics regulation that, sub that substances and by substances, they're referring to uh, monomers, starting substances, and additives that are subject to the positive list requirements of the plastics regulation. Uh, they must be, if they're in nanoform, they must be listed as such in nanoform with nanospecifications on the plastics regulation. Uh, typically for non-harmonized materials like rubber or silicones, etc., uh, this requirement does not uh, often exist, but that's not to say it does not exist. Uh, the Netherlands, for example, does not have a requirement that substances in nanoform must be explicitly listed as such. But for example, um, certain types of substances may be exempted from the positive list uh, requirements uh, if, they're, if they're, the migration is non-detected at a detection limit of 10 ppb, they are not carcinogenic, mutagenic, or toxic to reproduction, or substances uh, in nanoform. So, Substances in nanoform cannot evade of this exemption. And also the, the draft uh, French rubber decree notified to the European Commission actually includes the explicit requirement that additives uh, in nanoform must be explicitly listed as such. And of course the question arises as to what a substance in, in nanoform is, given that this is not defined in the food contact legislation. Uh, I simply want to recall that the Commission's guidance document on the plastics regulation does explicitly refer to Commission Recommendation 2011-696 on the definition of nanomaterials. So that definition is quite broad. It includes, for example, uh, materials naturally occurring in nanoform in addition to those that are deliberately engineered into nanoform. But I simply want to note that um, this, this recommendation is under uh, revision and may be changed in the future. So it may be, it may be helpful to explicitly state in the DOC whether or not uh, substances in nanoform are used and whether they comply with the plastics regulation. So for example, sometimes we come across a situation where silicone dioxide is declared as a dual-use additive in the DOC uh, but it's not clear uh, whether synthetic amorphous silicone dioxide meets the nanospecs, so we frequently have to follow up with suppliers to actually ask the question as to whether that's the case. Um, I briefly touched on NICE. Of course, this is a subject that's worth, worthy of, of a webinar or two all by itself. Uh, it's, it's quite, uh, the term is quite broadly defined as an impurity in the substances used or a reaction intermediate formed during the production process or a decomposition or reaction product. Uh, and this, the Commission and the EFSA indeed have made it clear that uh, NIAS includes oligomers, and this of course can make the whole NIAS assessment even more challenging. Uh, and the guidance documents on the DOC reiterates, of course, that substances must be of a suitable uh, purity and technical quality for use in uh, food contact applications. The plastics regulation explicitly sets out that NIAS must be assessed in accordance with internationally recognized principles of risk assessment. So in, in the declaration of compliance, uh, it would be advisable to 
included a statement that NICE have been risk assessed if this is the case, or to pass adequate information down the supply chain. And as I've already mentioned, there are a number of ways in which this information can be passed on depending on the degree of confidentiality. Uh, a reference to member state legislation, uh, it may be helpful uh, in, in the DOC. Uh, so it, prov it provides more, uh, well, more concrete confirmations to downstream users, particularly if they're based in member states uh, with national requirements. So even in the, in the case of plastic materials and articles, certain components such as polymer production aids uh, and colorants are subject to uh, member state legislation. And of course, for uh, food contact, other non-harmonized food contact materials, uh, this is even more so the case. Uh, for food contact materials such as silicone, for example, and rubber, there are many member states with, with national legally binding requirements. But it may be important to include uh, language also regarding the mutual recognition principle, as in practice it can be uh, very difficult to establish compliance with all member state requirements. And in accordance with the mutual recognition principle, if a food contact material is lawfully manufactured or marketed in one um, member state, it may thereafter be placed on the market in a member state with national technical requirements, um, even if it does not explicitly comply with those requirements. But of course, any uh, abbreviated prior authorization procedure in the member state of destination would need to be considered. So I think I pretty much said that. Uh, I simply want to recall that the Commission uh, did commence a study uh, of information in the supply chain. Uh, they have not released much information regarding this because they have indicated that they're going to take this into consideration during the ongoing uh, evaluation of the food contact legislation. But they have acknowledged that there are quite some difficulties with the flow of information in the supply chain. So lastly, I'm just going to briefly touch on, on some kind of common examples of, of issues we note with declarations of compliance. So here is a declaration of compliance for an adhesive. It, it certifies uh, compliance with the relevant FDA requirements and with ISO standards. Of course, there are many other issues with the DOC, uh, including its date and the lack of information. Uh, but the point I want to stress is that uh, compliance with the FDA uh, regulations may not always be sufficient uh, for the EU because in the United States, um, well, um, migration, the results of migration can be considerably refined to exposure by use of, for example, co consumption factors and other factors while in the EU, uh, migration equals exposure. And further, of course, the, the migration testing conditions in the EU uh, can uh, differ quite considerably from, from those in the US. Uh, this example is just, is just an example of the type of generic uh, language that can be included in a declaration of compliance that really doesn't pass on any information to the downstream user so it mentions that it complies with the framework regulation, uh, but there's no specific information passed on regarding any restrictions that might need to be uh, further verified by the downstream user. And finally, this is simply another example uh, where it mentions that there are impurities or substances that need to be further risk assessed, 
But again, no information is set out uh, regarding the particular substance. And of course, if, if compliance work, as I mentioned already, um, needs to be delegated, then the delegation should be very specific. So I think to sum up, I've already uh, you know, mentioned the main points that need to be considered uh, when issuing and reviewing declarations of compliance, and that is to keep in mind that uh, responsibility is shared throughout the supply chain, and while compliance work should typically be done as high up the supply chain as possible, according to the Commission, compliance work can be delegated, but in that situation, delegation needs to be very specific. And of course, it's important to keep this in mind when you're reviewing uh, DOCs, and of course, when you're issuing your own uh, DOCs. And in that respect, it may be an idea to have a particular person in your company that's responsible for the DOC, and, and that way the whole process is centralized because, of course, the issuance of a DOC and any statements therein uh, results in liability. Okay, now we will proceed with the uh, relevant technical considerations when preparing or reviewing the DOCs. And more specific, we will focus on assessing migration. Migration can be assessed in a theoretical way or experimental by doing migration testing. Uh, calculations uh, based on theoretical uh, assumptions is less expensive and, and time, uh, less time consuming. Uh, but it overestimates, it can overestimate the migration into food because you assume 100% uh, uh, migration into food. In order to perform, uh, um, to calculate the migration, you would need to know the concentration of the substance in the polymer layer. And calculation of migration is not possible for overall migration. Overall migration always needs to be uh, performed by testing, and not by uh, cannot be uh, cannot be done by calculation. Another way to assess the migration is by performing migration studies. Uh, migration studies are more expensive and more time-consuming. Uh, studies need to be done in different uh, food simulants under different time temperature conditions and also, um, but it gives a really accurate and, uh, representation of the actual level of migration of a sub substance which is subject to a specific migration limit. Uh, determining the specific migration of a uh, substance may be limited because you have to develop uh, an analytical method which is uh, sensitive enough to uh, detect the um, migration of the um, substance at, uh, the at, at a specific migration limit or even lower. Again, as uh, indicated earlier, for overall migration, testing is always required, and the uh, theoretical way by calculation is not possible. When we take a close look at how calculations are being performed, in fact, calculation of migration is uh, most of the time uh, a first, used as a first step instead of uh, laboratory migration testing. 
Calculations can be done in two ways. It can be done by uh, assuming 100% migration of the additive or uh, a residual monomer, if, if that's known, or it can be done based on modeling using the principles of diffusion. For the 100% migration calculation, it is, uh, some parameters are needed uh, to be known. The first one is the thickness of the article or the layer, also the density of the material in which the food context substance is being used must be known, and of course also the concentration of the substance as the food context surface area to volume ratio. Because it's the worst case and because you assume 100% migration of uh, the substance, time and temperature are not relevant in this case, as is the size of the substance. The uh, uh, migration can be calculated by multiplying the density of the article with the thickness of the article, the concentration of the substance in the article, uh, and dividing that with the food contact surface area uh, to volume ratio. In that way, you get a value uh, for the migration, which is based on 100% migration of that specific substance. What kind of thickness you would need to apply in this uh, uh, calculation of the uh, migration? It depends. When a material is very thick, or if it's, uh, the, uh, the application is unknown, a, theori a theoretical uh, thickness or worst case thickness can be taken into uh, consideration. Uh, up to very recently, up to 2017, it was possible to use the um, maximum thickness of 250 micron because uh, in line with the EFSA note for guidance that time, it was indicated that this thickness of 250 micron uh, could be considered a worst case uh, thickness. But now, uh, this is not, longer, uh, not valid any longer since the uh, latest uh, publication of the EFSA note for guidance in 2017. Um, where, where this uh, assumption of the worst case thickness of uh, 250 micron has been deleted. Instead, references made to the GR, GRC draft guidance on migration um, testing, and in this GRC draft guidance, um, information is provided on, on thicknesses, new thicknesses that can be regarded as worst cases. And these thicknesses, um, depend on several parameters. It depends on the polymer type, the context conditions, and also on the molecular mass of the migrant. And in this GRC uh, draft guidance, tables are uh, in the, uh, published uh, where it's indicated for a certain polymer types under which context conditions and for which uh, molecular mass um, the the thickness of the, what, what would be the maximum thickness uh, where 100% migration would uh, occur. If you uh, assess your migration based on 100% migration calculation, then uh, information that may be need that may need to be included in the in the DUC are the following. In first instance, of course. Uh, confirmation that the compliance uh, 
uh, with the relevant requirements of the substance is based on 100% migration calculations. The thickness of the material which is uh, being used uh, should be also included in the DUC, as is the food contact service area to volume ratio. And it may also be helpful to include, for instance, information on the um, density of the polymer um, in order to, uh, to facilitate or to support um, the, uh, the calculations made. Why is it important in some cases to insert information or details like uh, the thickness of the material in the DUC? Um, this can be uh, explained, uh, this is explained by the following example. Suppose we would have a multi-layer uh, film which consists of three layers, a PP layer on the inside and on the outside, and in the intermediate layer, a PE layer. layer. The PP layer um, uh, is supplied by the, uh, by the same uh, supplier, and it, it's, it's the, uh, they are, co contain the, are, are contained from the um, same uh, composition. And this uh, supplier of these PP grades confirms that the PP grade does not contain any additive with an SML. So that, me so that means that uh, it's not necessary to perform any migration, specific migration testing for this PP grade. For the PE uh, uh, supplier, uh, he indicates that there is in this PE resin uh, a substance with an SML, but the PE supplier does not want to disclose the uh, identity of the substance with a certain specific migration limit. But the PE supplier confirms in his DOC that the SML of this substance will not be exceeded by worst-case calculation for a film with a thickness of 150 micron at a given surface-to-volume ratio. So that means that uh, for the customer, he will be able to confirm compliance as long as he uh, uses the thickness of uh, the PE layer of 150 micron or less at the given or lower surface-to-volume ratio. But in the case the customer will use, would like to use a PE layer with a thickness above 150 micron, then he would need to contact the um, supplier to, to get more information, for instance, um, to, to get the identity in order to to establish um, the specific migration of this substance at uh, higher thicknesses, and if that, in that case, would still be in compliance with the restriction set. Another way to uh, determine the calculation uh, or the migration in a theoretical way is by mathematic modeling. Mathematic modeling or diffusion calculations are uh, performed in case 100% migration calculation gives an exceeding of the uh, regulator, uh, regulatory limits and or the toxicity threshold. Um, diffusion calculations can, can, can be done by hand, but uh, it's, it's 
much, much more easy to use commercial software um, to do this. Um, mathematic modeling can be applied for, for many uh, polymers, but for, um, for instance, for, for, for polyolefins, it's already known that, that uh, the diffusion calculations are generally in, unsuccessful because uh, they, they give um, a relatively high um, migration uh, results. For the um, using mathematic modeling in order to calculate the migration, diffusion properties of the polymer layer must be known. And in most commercial software, information on the diffusion, uh, diffusion coefficients of different polymers are already uh, inserted or available. Also, time and temperature conditions of use must be considered because you need to perform or, or uh, include in the insert in the software the appropriate time temperature conditions which uh, needs to be uh, used in the model and also of course the concentration of the migrant within the food contact layer must be known in order to, to model the uh, migration of that specific substance. In the case uh, diffusion calculations are being used to support the uh, migration um, in the declaration of compliance, it should be inserted that compliance of a substance uh, was obtained uh, based on uh, using mathematic modeling. In addition, information on the food contact service area to volume ratio should be provided, the thickness of the material, and also the time temperature conditions used, or details on the end applications which are covered by uh, using this model. It should be noted that um, the information to be provided in or to be included in the DOC uh, needs to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, it depends on, on, on where you stand in, in the uh, supply chain. Yeah, for instance, when, when we have an intermediate uh, material, sometimes it's not, not uh, known what, what is the end-use application. So in that case, you would need to, to specify the time and temperature conditions which are used in, in the model. In case 100% uh, migration calculation or mathematic modeling doesn't give uh, results which are sufficiently low, so that means that as uh, specific migration limits are exceeded, then um, the migration needs to be uh, determined by testing in order to establish the actual uh, migration of a specific substance. Again, as indicated earlier, testing, migration testing is always required for overall migration. While overall migration testing shall always be performed on the final food contact material. What are the, para uh, the relevant parameters for migration testing? In first instance, of course, the sample to be tested, it should be uh, representative for, um, for the material, uh, a worst case material, if, if, it, if, if a range of materials needs to be covered, and uh, worst case material needs to be selected. Appropriate solvents, appropriate food stimulants need to be selected in order to cover all the uh, intended food contact applic applications. 
the information on the volume to surface area ratio should be uh, is relevant, as is the time and temperature conditions um, selected for migration testing. For uh, determining the specific migration of a specific uh, substance, it's in, uh, important to develop uh, analytical methods which are uh, which have a detection limit which is sufficiently low, and also uh, these analytical methods need to be validated in line with uh, EFSA requirements or EU requirements. Uh, migration tests are uh, performed in uh, food simulants, and in the plastics regulation, uh, these food simulants uh, are explained. Uh, depending on the food type that needs to be covered or the material is intended to come into contact with, you select your uh, food simulant. For aqueous food, uh, simulant A, it's 10% ethanol, uh, needs to be used in the migration test. For acidic food uh, with pH lower than 4.5, 3% acetic acid is being used. Uh, for ethanolic foods, up to an uh, ethanol uh, concentration of 20%, 20% ethanol is being used. And for semi-fatty food products like dairy products or milk, 50% ethanol is being used as a food simulant. For fatty foods and vegetable oil, most of the time that's, uh, it, that's um, olive oil is being used. And in case uh, um, materials are intended to come into contact with dry foods, MPPO or TNAX, uh, which is simulant E, is being used uh, in the migration tests. For fatty food applications, uh, vegetable oil, yeah, that's uh, simulant D2, is or, or is um, indicated to be used as a fatty food simulant, but olive oil can be, or vegetable oil can be, a very difficult uh, matrix. And in some cases, yeah, there are special, or, or there are certain technical reasons um, uh, where the use of uh, vegetable oil as a food, uh, fatty food stimulant is not possible. And in those cases, it's, you, it's possible to use alternative uh, fatty food stimulants. Uh, it is uh, emphasized that uh, the use of alternative uh, fatty food stimulants is not only uh, to facilitate the uh, migration testing in a fatty food simulant, it, uh, it can only be applied in certain situations. And uh, for instance, this can be uh, for over, in the case of overall migration, in case the test sample absorbs uh, the uh, vegetable oil excessively, then it's not possible to determine the overall migration in vegetable oil, and you can make use of an alternative. For specific migration, in some cases, depending on the migrant, it's possible that the migrant reacts with the simulants. For instance, uh, primary aromatic amines, they react with oil. So in that case, specific migration cannot be determined in olive oil. But if you want to you make use of alternative fatty food simulants, you have to have uh, in your supporting documentation a reasoning or a justification why, you, um, um, why it's not possible to use uh, vegetable oil 
in your uh, migration testing and why you use alternatives instead. The alternative fatty food simulants are iso-octane, 95% uh, ethanol, and Steenex. Uh, it's noted that when you use an alternative fatty food simulant, you have to test in iso-octane uh, and in 95% ethanol, so that means in both. And in TANAPS, uh, is only being used for testing above 100 degrees Celsius. We see many times that um, alternative fatty food simulants are being used and then they use only 95% ethanol or they don't give any explanation why it's not possible uh, to use vegetable oil. But uh, that's not acceptable. acceptable. You really have to use iso-octane and 95% ethanol. The test conditions when using alternative fatty food simulants are um, explained in the JRC uh, guidance on migration testing. Um, the selection of the um, test conditions for the alternatives depends on the polymer type. For non-polar uh, polymers like polyolefins, uh, polystyrenes, um, the, uh, you use other uh, test conditions for the alternatives, fat, uh, fatty food simulants, when you are dealing uh, with, with more polar um, polymers like PET. Uh, like PET. Uh, so you really have to, ta to take a close look on, on, on the polarity of your, your material and then select the appropriate test condition for the alternative fatty food simulants. In case uh, it's not known which uh, specific application needs to be covered, uh, how do you select your uh, simulant for the migration testing? That's indicated uh, as follows. Uh, in case you want to cover all food types, uh, tests shall be performed in food simulant A, that's 10% ethanol, B, 3% acetic acid, and D2, that's the oil, uh, vegetable oil. So depending on, on the food type to be covered, uh, you can select your uh, simulant according uh, to this table. It's also um, present in the uh, plastics regulation in the 10 2011. It's, it's explained how, how to select the appropriate simulant in order to cover the intended food contact applications. In case the application, uh, food contact application is known, then you can select your uh, food simulant from the table, which is all also in the plastics regulation. Uh, for instance, uh, I have here a uh, fraction of, of, of this table. If you would have, for instance, um, um, a food type uh, categorized under uh, 060, 0.03, that's meat. Uh, if this is uh, fresh or chilled, then uh, a cross is there under column A, that's the 10% ethanol, so that means migration tests shall be performed in 10% ethanol, but also in D2, so that's the vegetable oil, so migration tests are also uh, necessary to be performed in vegetable oil, while in this specific case, a simulant D2 reduction factor of 4 
is applicable, meaning that your overall migration value and or your specific migration value may be divided by uh, four for this specific application when you are using a vegetable oil for the migration testing. The test conditions for specific migration testing are also uh, derived from or indicated in the plastics regulation. And in fact, um, the uh, time temperature conditions to be selected depend on the actual use and you can use and you can make um, the combination um, based on the actual use condition. For instance, if you would have a material that's being uh, used under sterilization temperature conditions up to a temperature of 121 degrees Celsius, you have to test at uh, 121 degrees. And if this sterilization takes uh, one, uh, one half hour, half an hour, then you would need to test half an hour at 120 degrees Celsius. So you can make any combination as long as it covers your, uh, the intended use. For contact times above 30 days, there are specific uh, test conditions laid down in the 10-2011 plastics regulation. And these are the following. Um, for long-term storage uh, at uh, any time uh, under frozen conditions, um, migration, specific migration testing should be performed 10 days at 20 degrees Celsius. And the most important in this case, and also the most applied, I think, is the 10 days at 60, 60 degrees Celsius conditions that covers um, any long-term storage, so that means uh, storage longer than half a year at room temperature. For the testings at 40 degrees Celsius, 50 degrees Celsius, and 60 degrees Celsius, um, it has to be noted that these test conditions also cover um, short-time heating and or hot fill between 70 degrees Celsius and 100 degrees Celsius. For instance, it would cover uh, two hours um, two hours at 70 degrees Celsius, as well as 15 minutes at 100 degrees Celsius. For overall migration testing, the time and temperatures to be selected are not so, there's not so much variation as for specific migration testing because according to the plastics regulation, there are uh, standardized uh, test conditions for overall migration. Uh, here, the OM1 to OM7 are indicated uh, also um, what, what they cover. In this case, um, when we look at OM2, that's 10 days at 40 degrees Celsius, it covers long-term storage at room temperature, including hot fill, uh, comparable to the specific migration. But uh, if you would have um, to do specific migration in order to cover long-term storage at room temperature, you would need to perform testing at 10 days at 60 degrees Celsius. So that, that's really a difference. There's also OM8 and OM9, but these are for uh, the cases where um, 
uh, vegetable oil cannot be used or for high temperature applications uh, in, in fatty food applications and when you can make use of um, the uh, TENAX or the simulant E um, and in uh, OM7, OM8 and OM9 indicate the test conditions when you uh, use this TENAX or simulant E to cover uh, high temperature applications. In case um, your DUC is, is, is based on migration testing, what information would need to be included in the DUC is, uh, in first instance, a confirmation that uh, the overall migration limit, the specific migration, or any uh, or, or a QM is in compliance with the relevant requirements. Also, the uh, end-use applications which are, which are covered and it means the, the, the use time, temperature conditions, which uh, type uh, of foods are covered, uh, or, or alternatively, uh, if, if the end use is not known, details on the test conditions applied in the migration test should be inserted in the DUC, as is the information on the food context service area to volume ratio. Again, it is noted that um, the information to, do, to be provided in the DUC needs to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. It depends on where you are in the supply chain. If you would have an um, intermediate material, overall migration limit is not relevant, and then you would need, don't need to confirm that overall migration uh, is in compliance. And if you don't know the end use, uh, then, then, there's, uh, then you have to provide information on the test conditions uh, applied in the migration study so your customer can, can derive from that uh, what uh, if his application is covered by the test conditions applied uh, in the migration test. Okay, then we will uh, proceed with uh, liability. So yes, uh, now we are going to turn to liability, the last part of this, um, of this presentation, liability in case something goes wrong. Obviously, no one would like to be in this situation when, where there would be an issue, but, an issue, but uh, it's important to be aware of the liability implications. Uh, these liability issues may arise in case, for instance, enforcement authorities uh, conduct control of product on the market and they realize that some components are migrating into food at levels that are uh, causing safety issues. But liability issues are also triggered when uh, DOCs are not delivered or where they are delivered, they are inaccurate or incomplete. And uh, the issues of uh, components migrating uh, into food at high levels may come from the fact that the DOC was not alerting the downstream users that some, some uh, testing and verification of the migration of certain common components needed to be uh, addressed. Uh, generally speaking, uh, liability issues have to be uh, assessed on a case-by-case -case basis. This is depending on the product, the facts, the actors in the supply chain. We, and as Edel mentioned that earlier in, um, 
in her present, part of the presentation, it is not the final article manufacturer that is going to uh, assume all the liability for the product. Of course, the, um, the product, the brand owners that are placing the product on the market are going to be the, pr the first one that are targeted by enforcement authorities, but enforcement authorities are going also to investigate and go up in the supply chain to determine where the failure has occurred. Um, when liability issues occur, that triggers uh, criminal liability, liability because of a breach of the legislation, but also commercial and contractual liability between operators themselves. It can, uh, in the food contact area, it has uh, not been the case, but it is possible that uh, damages could occur following uh, a breach of the legislation that leads to civil liability. So criminal liability, again, is triggered when there is a breach to the applicable legislation. And uh, we did not really cover in detail what the applicable legislation was, but it's, it can be the framework, a breach to the framework regulation, uh, for instance, breach to Article 3.1a on the safety of uh, food contact materials. It can be breach of the principle of inertness, for instance, when some uh, components migrate to the food and, and leads the food to get some odor that is not the natural odor that you would expect from the food. Um, it could be a breach from the implementing uh, measures, the plastics regulation, breach to the SMLs that are set in the plastics regulation, or breach to uh, national rules uh, like the coating legislation, for instance, uh, in certain member states like the Netherlands that have a coating uh, legislation. The criminal liability is triggered uh, when there is a safety issue, of course, but not only when there is a safety issue. There could be a compliance issue without triggering any safety issue. For instance, you do not deliver uh, your uh, DOC to, uh, to your suppliers. You are in breach of the legislation that requires um, the delivery of uh, such documents. Uh, the breach may uh, be uh, observed under different circumstances. It can be uh, following routine controls from uh, enforcement authorities, and uh, there have been uh, lots of discussions uh, lately on enforcement at EU level uh, and reports uh, stating that enforcement is not really performed very well, not done at... Um, uh, very often, so there have been calls from the Commission uh, to, uh, to member states to mandate them to do more controls. So we know that some member states claim that, claim that they do not have the resources uh, they, and the time to do control of all products on the market and food contact is not their priority. But uh, this uh, needs to change, especially within uh, what we understand from the discussion on the uh, ongoing EU, uh, EU evaluation. You have also to know that um, uh, official, the official control regulation has been uh, amended and uh, the new regulation that is going to come into force in December uh, of this year is going to threaten uh, 
enforcement activities, but also uh, going to lead, for instance, to more transparency in terms of the controls that member states are going to run and the reports. Uh, notably, they have introduced the, the principle uh, of uh, name and shame uh, in the report, so they are going to name the companies that they are that are breaching the legislation, which was not done in the past. So all this to to emphasize the fact that there should be more control uh, in the the months to come or the years to come. The breach can be also highlighted through the rapid alert system for food and feed, which is a network network within which member states uh, are communicating on the breach they are observing uh, on their territory, and depending on the severity of the breach, they, uh, they issue alert or notification of such breaches, leading other member states to take actions on their own territory. It could be also that the breach are reve revealed following consumers' uh, complaint or competitors' complaint. Uh, we, are, we hear from time to time some requests and, or investigation of customer, I mean, companies on the competitor's product, but uh, typically the, uh, the complaints to enforcement authorities are not very often coming from competitors. They are more coming from uh, enforcement control or consumer complaints. So member states um, may, may set, uh, first take administrative uh, measures following breach to the uh, food contact legislation. They may, if there is a safety issue, they may re require recall of the product on the market or withdrawn, withdrawal of such of products. They may also require the product to be destroyed if they cannot be used for other purposes. It is possible that within their control measures, they also decide to close part of the whole uh, business of a company until uh, appropriate measures are taken by the operator to remedy the breach to the legislation. That, these are administrative measures, but on the top of that, they can take uh, and set criminal penalties that are set at national level and vary from one member state to another. The framework regulation requires that the penalties that are being set by member states are effective, dissuasive, and proportionate without defining what those uh, penalties are. In the new official control regulation, they have, um, they, they, they have establish more rules on those penalties in case of breach, so uh, they can be a certain percentage of the, um, the business volume of the company. So it's important to, uh, uh, to, take, uh, to pay attention also to the new rules that are going to, be, uh, to come in force. Um, it's important also to keep in mind that when penalties are set by member states, they depend on the severity of the breach itself. So if there is a safety issue requiring uh, urgent measures and, uh, uh, and if the company, for instance, have, has been really uh, known to the enforcement authorities for breaching the legislation, 
very often, so the severity of the of the penalty is going to be uh, in accordance with uh, uh, these uh, facts. Um, it takes also into consideration the fact that the breach can be intentional, but also sometimes is non-intentional. So all these are taken into consideration in determining the level of the penalties. We have taken just two examples of some of the penalties, and we, uh, because we really <coughs> focused on DOCs today, so we, we mentioned those penalties in relation to DOCs. So for instance, in Germany, the fine can, can be up to 50,000 euros when you place on the market a product without a DOC, a written DOC. Um, it could be also up to 50,000 uh, uh, euros uh, for failure to provide the supporting uh, documentation or to provide the information in time. Usually when member states require uh, to get access to the supporting documentation, the legislation does not say, set uh, any time frame, but the Commission in its guidance on documents uh, on plastics mentioned that it should be provided without delay. And certain member states, uh, like the Nordic countries in their, in their guidance documents, have uh, uh, mentioned that such documentation should be provided within uh, one to two weeks. This is considered as uh, fairly quick. If you look at France, uh, the fine uh, can be is a little bit less, 45,000 euros, but it can be combined with three years of imprisonment if the DOC has been intentionally falsified. So I know that uh, operators are really careful and do not want to uh, intentionally falsify their uh, DOC, but it's important to keep in mind that uh, uh, there are penalties when the DOC is not, uh, uh, is not accurate. So the penalties, the criminal penalties are maybe important, but they are really nothing to compare to the possible uh, commercial and uh, contractual liability issues that may arise in case a product has been retrieved from the, uh, from the market. Then you can have claims from business operators uh, to, to, uh, re regarding the cost uh, and related damages for the recall, the cost for the recall, the cost for the storage, cost for destruction. Uh, also, they may claim that uh, because of the breach of uh, contractual obligation, they need to be compensated for that. And of course, and importantly, for the commercial losses, including damages to the reputation of the company. So all these are really uh, lead to very, very uh, difficult um, discussion between uh, operators, um, and uh, there may be long, long trials. We have seen, for instance, in one uh, case where there have been. Uh, migration from uh, four methyl benzophenone into milk uh, from uh, a milk uh, a milk bottle, and uh, the dispute uh, lasted almost ten years uh, before it was uh, it was uh, settled. So this can also uh, take a lot of time from uh, the workload of operators dealing with these type of issues. 
One important point that we want to recall, and we have already stressed that uh, operators are sharing responsibility and liability throughout the supply chain. And every operator, whether he wants to, uh, he doesn't want to state compliance or not, but he knows that he is uh, supplying to food contact applications, um, he is responsible for the product that is supplied to his downstream users. He's responding, responsible for the adequacy of the manufacturing process, compliance with GMP, uh, the specification he would set to the raw material he selects to prepare and to manufacture its product, and obviously for the DOCs uh, that are being issued. However, the extent of the liability uh, is, is going to be determined uh, based on different factors. Obviously, uh, on the DOC, because this is really the written document that is being issued, that this is what the enforcement authorities are going to be looking at. But also, the, the, the extent of the liability may be determined also following the requirements that have been uh, imposed by customers. There was a time and a case where we've been aware where a customer wanted uh, its uh, supplier to use certain uh, photo initiators, uh, certain uh, lacquers, etc. even though the lacquers were not necessarily appropriate for food contact applications. Uh, they wanted that for because it looks good uh, on the product, the packaging, but uh, they didn't care much on uh, about safety. Uh, things have changed, obviously, and uh, now that there are more controls, there, are, there is more attention to that is being paid by uh, the supply chain on safety. Um, of course, uh, one point that uh, is important also to keep in mind is that the due diligence that you are going to exercise in the full process of assessing compliance. If you receive, for instance, DOCs that, that are incomplete, uh, as a professional, it is expected that you would go back to your, your supplier to request some clarification. If you don't do that, you are not really exercising due diligence, and you may be also deemed liable for uh, this uh, uh, omission. So it's important to keep it, you keep in mind that even though you, uh, you are dealing with professionals, each uh, of the documents you are receiving, you need to review the documents and ask questions. If you don't do that when there is obvious obvious um, mistakes in the DOC you receive, then you are going to be deemed responsible and you cannot really put that in your drawer and ignore that. So this slide is merely to intended to illustrate um, the correlation between liability and the extent of the information that is provided. Of course, if you provide only commercial information uh, that is not going to help on uh, the on a, uh, that is not going to help understanding the compliance work you have done on the project, that would not be relevant. So it's not really necessary to pour a lot of uh, information on your downstream users when that information is not relevant to the compliance assessment. But when you have good DOCs, even though you cannot completely be exonerated from uh, liability, you can mitigate your liability by providing relevant information to downstream users to, to shift the liability onto them to make the 
the further assessment. Uh, again, you cannot really shift all liability uh, to downstream users when you are in the best place to do some checks, but uh, there is a balance uh, to, to keep uh, in uh, the supply chain as well, as well as in corresponding with your uh, downstream uh, users. So uh, I'm going to end up quickly with the civil liability. As I said, it's not very often uh, an issue in food contact. Uh, uh, there were, there, I'm not aware actually of any issue where there have been uh, damages caused by food packaging or uh, food contact materials to uh, a person, but it is possible that that happens. And we cannot exclude, for instance, that uh, when they are uh, product, elaborated product like uh, uh, blenders or coffee machines that are being used and uh, all of a sudden there, there is an issue with the blender and, uh, and uh, the person, the user, is uh, injured, that could trigger uh, this, um, this type of liability. And this is covered by the Defective Product Liability Directive, which is an old directive that is currently being um, considered for revision. Uh, the directive provides that all I mean, producers are liable for the damages that are being caused by a defective product. And the damages that are to be covered by this uh, directive are phys physical or material damages. They do not cover non-material uh, damages like, for instance, uh, there was following the ITX issue back uh, in early uh, 2005, uh, around that time, uh, there was a company who, uh, sorry, uh, a user who was uh, a parent and claimed that there were the, the ITX uh, incident has caused some psychological distress to this parent and they wanted to uh, claim damages under this directive, and that was dismissed because this is really covered by national legislation. A product is regarded as defective based on this uh, directive when it does not provide the level of safety that a person is entitled to expect uh, when purchasing that, um, that product. And this is also, uh, of course, to be determined uh, uh, in light of the labeling of the product, the instructions of use of the product, etc. The directive has been adopted at the time to uh, the benefit of the injured person. They wanted to facilitate uh, the possibility for the injured person to claim compensation for the damages uh, incurred. So to that effect, they have decided to retain a very broad definition of a producer under this directive that can be a manufacturer of a finished product, but also the producer of a raw material or the manufacturer of a component part, part of the product or any person that is using its name and putting its name uh, and presenting itself as the, the producer. So this was really to enable the injured person to easily identify uh, a company uh, in the supply chain to uh, claim uh, compensation for the damages uh, incurred. 
Uh, also to facilitate the work of the injured party, this is a, the, the company or producers within the meaning of this directive are responsible without fault. That means that the injured party does not need to, um, to show that uh, there is a failure on part of the producer uh, or negligence uh, on its part to, uh, to claim uh, compensation. They just need to show that there is a damage, a defect, and the causal relationship between the defect of the product and the damage caused to be able to be compensated. It's joint responsibility or joint uh, liability for throughout the supply chain, again, to the benefit of the injured party. Uh, the proceedings, again, in, in such a case, needs to be launched within three years following uh, the, the, the injured party being aware of uh, the, the problem, uh, the damage, the defect, and the identity of the producer. It is, of course, possible for the producer to uh, uh, object uh, and claim that uh, as a defense, for instance, there are certain grounds that are identified in the directive. I mentioned um, uh, one of the grounds that can come up, which is uh, uh, as a defense, which is a state of the scientific evidence and knowledge that did not enable the producer to be aware of the defect when the product was placed on the market. Um, it is important to know that even though this type of defense is mentioned in the directive, certain member states have not uh, allowed the use of this defense uh, in national legislation. So that was in a nutshell uh, our, uh, what we wanted to say uh, during this uh, webinar. We would be happy to welcome any question and answers. I believe we have received some of those already. So there is one first question uh, that we received, um, which was about, um, which asked, can you elaborate on the applicability of mutual recognition, for example, if an item meets Spain, the Spanish or the British uh, legislation before Brexit? Uh, rather than germ German legislation, would that be enough to rely on mutual recognition? So um, mutual recognition, as Hazel was mentioning, uh, it's, a, it's a principle that is derived from the case law and in itself it could be the subject of a webinar. So uh, what uh, we can say in short is that this is derived from the case law uh, it, it enables prod, produ, uh, operators to overcome the difficulties of relying um, with the national uh, rely, no, sorry, complying with the national requirements of a country where they are placing their product. But it requires certain conditions to be met. You need the product must be lawful in the country where it is originating from. Um, the, the member states in which the manufacturing, uh, in which the product is imported, so the second country from, if you go from country A to country B, B the country B 
uh, if it has a pre-market uh, authorization procedure, you need to assess whether the pre-market authorization procedure is in line with the, the interpretation of the Court of Justice, which has established certain criteria, and if it is not in line with those criteria, then you can rely on mutual recognition and ignore the pre-market approval. In Spain, depending on what materials you are talking about, if you are talking about that the material that is being regulated in Spain, Spain uh, rec recognizes um, compliance with other member states' legislation. Um, they have inserted the mutual recognition clause in their legislation, so you can really do that and rely on, the, on that clause to market in, uh, in Spain. But it's if, um, if, for instance, we are talking about a product that is cleared in the plastics regulation, this product is also cleared in Spain, and you could consider that it's fully compliant with the Spanish legislation when it, ter in turn, it, it, uh, it comes to, for instance, non-harmonized materials like rubber, uh, silicone, uh, waxes, and so forth. So again, I'm not sure if I, you, uh, I was clear in that in this respect, but you can rely on mutual recognition principle, but it's a principle that is more complex than what is generally presented because we don't have the time to detail what the principle is. Uh, I can forward to uh, the attendees a presentation we've done on mutual recognition so that you, that would help you understand better the situation. Germany has no specific legislation. They have only guidance documents, and the recommendations from the BFR are not binding. So in itself, you don't need mutual recognition to market in Germany, uh, for instance. So uh, the next question, uh, there are actually two questions in relation to uh, dual-use additives. The first one, is can you explain what a dual-use additive is? Maybe that was earlier in my uh, presentation because I did subsequently get to that. Uh, the second question is probably a bit more detailed. Uh, we are users of articles for food packaging. Usually we get info from our suppliers on the identity of dual-use additives, but no info on their concentration in the article. Is it not mandatory for manufacturers of articles to provide the manufacturers of foods with such a critical info? Um, well, with respect to the first question, to go back to uh, dual-use additives, uh, according to the Commission's guidance document, is a substance authorized for, as an, to be, for use as an additive in plastics that is, is or, or, or indeed, I guess, any other type of food contact material uh, that's also authorized as a food additive or flavoring. And for the purposes of the, what, what's considered to be a dual-use additive, it does not really uh, matter whether it, the purity meets the food additive uh, specifications or not. It would still fall within the dual-use additive, uh, the meaning of dual-use additive, nor does it matter whether it's subject to restriction or food or not. Um, with respect to uh, the food, the, the users of the articles for food packaging, indeed, in accordance with the, the food contact legislation, adequate information should be passed down the supply chain in relation to uh, these dual-use additives. Of course, it's possible that there are dual-use additives present that are actually not subject to restriction in food. 
So in that case, the exact concentration of the additive might be a bit less critical. Uh, but we would expect typically if the, if the manufacturer of an article is providing it to, uh, uh, you know, for food packaging, that they would provide some information in relation to uh, substances subject to a restriction of food. Uh, for example, even if they don't um, maybe you know, identify the, the dual use additive in all cases, they could maybe indicate what type of assessment they've undertaken to conclude that it could not lead to the food being out of compliance with a food additives limitation. For example, if they conducted a, a worst case migration calculation and found that uh, the amount, the potential migration was 0.0001% of the lowest limit uh, applicable to, to, to food, maybe that would be, would be helpful for the end user. But indeed, uh, in general terms, they should provide adequate information uh, to, to the, food, the food packer so that they're in a position to ensure that the requirements of the food additives legislation or the food flavorings legislation are met. Next question. <clears throat> Next question, we have a question about uh, OML test results. Can OML test results be used to cover SML substances? For instance, if an OMS over-migration is 2 milligrams per square decimeter, using, used with a surface-to-volume ratio of 6 per decimeter per kilogram food, can this be used to cover SML substances with an SML of 12 milligrams per kilogram and higher. Uh, in fact, it, uh, that's not possible because uh, the test conditions for overall migration and specific migration uh, are different. And if you can, maybe you can remember to cover uh, long-term storage at room temperature, overall migration shall be tested under conditions of 10 days at 40 degrees Celsius. While for specific migration, tests shall, shall be performed 10 days at 60 degrees Celsius. So if you would have performed overall migration at 10 days at 40 degrees Celsius and you would find the results of 2 milligrams per square decimeter, specific migration should be determined uh, at, at more severe conditions at uh, 60 degrees Celsius. So, um, that needs to be uh, determined separately from overall migration testing. Okay, next question. Somebody asked um, and mentioned quite often how suppliers release their DOC only with a non-disclosure agreement in place. And that person is asking whether this is acceptable. The, the issuance of a DOC is really a mandatory requirement that is not subject to uh, the possibility of having uh, an NDA uh, in place. This is a document that is also uh, that can be accessed to enforcement authorities. Obviously, as Hazel was explaining, if there are confidential information that uh, an operator does not want to communicate in the DOC, then he can enter into a non-disclosure agreement to cover those aspects but the DOC itself should not be accessible under a non-disclosure agreement. I don't think that would uh, be acceptable to enforcement authorities. Um. 
I just have a short question here. Um, can you please clarify if there are any USC requirements for additives and plastic articles? Uh, for example, antiseptic agents, antioxidants, UV stabilizers, etc. Uh, and yes, just to confirm that there is a, a DOC requirement for, for additives in, in, in plastic articles and indeed for, yeah, for, any, for, for starting substances used in, in the manufacture of plastic articles. Um, additives are, of course, not to, required to, to be manufactured under, under GMP because they are classified to be a starting substances for the purposes of uh, the GMP regulation, but in the DOC it's advisable to indicate that they are of a, a suitable purity and technical quality for use in, in food contact applications. And of course, if there are any impurities in, in the additive uh, that would need to be further risk assessed, then information would need to be passed down the supply chain in relation to such impurities. So, I have here a question on um, how to ensure compliance work uh, and declaration of compliance for non-harmonized food mm. contact material. Uh, there has been explained all testings, etc., based on plastics regulation. Um, yes, in principle, non-harmonized food contact materials are subject to um, national legislation if if there is national legislation in place for that for that specific type of food contact material. But in uh, principle or in practice. Uh, Non-harmonized food contact materials like coatings, uh, etc., are, are tested under conditions uh, similar to what, what uh, the plastics regulation uh, specifies. Uh, and, and for, for uh, other non-harmonized food contact materials, national uh, uh, regulation also has their own testing in, in, in place, testing requirements. So there is also a question about NIAS uh, assessment. NIAS, the question mentioned NIAS testing, and uh, they are asking whether it's required in the DOC and uh, well, we, as we explained, the DOC needs to cover the intentionally added substances, but also the non-intentionally added substances. And for the non-intentionally added substances, you need to uh, conduct a compliance assessment for those. It's not always easy to identify and qualify the, all the NIFs, but this needs to be covered in the, the DOC. And, um, you need to do the assessment as per requirement of Article 19 for plastics um, of the plastics regulation and for plastics. Uh, NIAS testing, it's really a difficult topic and I don't know uh, if we can really cover that mm -hmm. now, but uh, in itself it can be uh, really a, a one or two day conference. Um, However, it's important to keep in mind that NIAS needs to be assessed as part of the compliance assessment you need to conduct. One other question, uh, somebody is asking if there has been any, uh, ever been any enforcement action for packaging in the EU. As I mentioned um, in the presentation, yes, there have been 
cases. The ITX case is uh, one of those, and you can Google ITX and you would see, find the information because also that person is asking for information publicly available. You Google that and you would find it. Uh, and as I said, we have been involved in a case where 4-methylbenzophenone uh, was found in milk, and uh, that was following a complaint of consumers to enforcement authorities and then checks following that, and there, were, there have been issues after that, especially also uh, commercial disputes between the operators involved. Um, another question. If I have no support document from plastic cap supplier, is it enough to check raw material details from which cap is composed? And based on this, without any knowledge of supplier process, to create DOC or confirmation of example NIAS. So, I mean, the, the, your supplier is actually, I mean, the plastic cap is, is really a final article that needs to be just put on the bottle. So, your supplier should be, uh, you know, supplying you with a, a DOC. And it's very, it's almost impossible to do a NIAS evaluation if you don't have any details of the NIAS that may potentially be present. So. Uh, I think we would say that your supplier should certainly be uh, providing you with an EU food contact uh, declaration of compliance for the plastic cap as a final article and also uh, address NIAS as part of that DOC. So there is one um, one question. Uh, our suppliers release SML information to us only with a non-disclosure agreement. So we only release information on substances with SML once the NDA is in place. Is it acceptable? Yes, it is acceptable uh, to release that information under a non-disclosure agreement, but in the GOC, in, there must be some language indicating that there are substances uh, subject to SML, the identity of which would need to be uh, disclosed under non-disclosure agreement, uh, non agreement. This needs to be set out in the GOC, even though the identity themselves of the substances are not identified. So uh, there is another question also, do manufacturers of printing ink intended for use on food packaging require to provide DOCs for each and every formulation? Uh, you, you can combine the DOC for different products assuming, assuming that uh, the, the composition of the product is, is, the, is the same and there may be some uh, different concentration, but really not significant differences between the, the product, and you, uh, you can combine that per range of products, if that, um, that is uh, something that is possible in this case. But it must be clear, the information that is set out uh, in, the, in the DOC must be clear as covering a range of products. Uh, one thing that very often comes up uh, with respect to printing inks is that uh, they are not uh, subject to DOC requirements, 
they only uh, uh, accept they only accept to disclose uh, composition in uh, how they call it um, I don't remember the exact formulation composition uh, composition disclosure or something okay. but they don't want to call it DOCs but mm -hmm. uh, regardless of how they call it uh, there are national requirements as we said that require that all food contact materials including Thus, printing inks be subject to DOCs. Another question is, are manufacturers of polymers supposed to change PPA without informing the downstream users? Uh, I presume you mean, you know, is it possible to change PPA, PPAs without informing the, the downstream users? And I, I, I would say that we would say that this needs to be uh, evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis. So, for example, if the PPA is listed on the plastics regulation and it's not subject to a restriction, it, you know, it, it may not be necessary to, to convey any particular information to your customer uh, regarding the PPA in question. Uh, however, if it's a PPA that's you know, subject to a restriction, which you cannot verify, that needs to be verified by the downstream user, whether that, PPA, whether that restriction is set out in the plastics regulation or in member state legislation, then it would be necessary to, to pass on uh, information uh, regarding the PPA in question. Uh, another question is, uh, could you mention about compliance of solvents regarding plastics and coatings applications? Um, well, uh, in the case of plastics, uh, solvents are, are not subject to the positive list requirement of the, the plastics regulation. Uh, they may, may be placed on the market on the e, in the EU subject to uh, member states legislation and, and the mutual recognition principle, which Rashida spoke about earlier. Uh, to our knowledge, for, for plastics at least, there, there's not really a member state maintaining a positive list. Uh, for example, the, the while the Netherlands has a positive list for polymer production aids, um, it explicitly excludes solvents from that uh, positive list. Uh, Spain perhaps has a broader uh, definition of PPA which might potentially encompass solvents when they're functioning as PPAs rather than carrier solvents. But other than that, I, I don't think there are really any, any significant requirements at member states. But of course, it must be kept in mind that uh, the, the solvent must be uh, risk assessed in accordance with uh, internationally recognized principles uh, of risk assessment, regardless of whether it's being used in plastics or in coatings. Okay, there is another question also uh, regarding um, organoleptic testing. Uh, is it necessary to mention in the DOC that our organoleptic testing has been done? Often suppliers just confirm in the DOC that the polymer or the article comply with the requirements of the framework regulation, and it is the question is, would that be enough? How can I make sure that the organoleptic test was performed? So it is true that uh, very often we see in the DOC general uh, statements uh, regarding compliance with the framework regulation. Um, and, um, and sorry, with the framework regulation and with the plastics regulation, and obviously when um, when this is done, this triggers uh, broad uh, interpretation because it's not specific, and you did not really the, the 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 supplier of the DOC did not narrow the language, 
and qualifies the language of the compliance statement, meaning that when it says that it's compliant with the framework regulation and plastics regulation, one would need to assume that the organoleptic testing has been done. If you are dealing, if you want to exercise due diligence, you could really argue that um, you need to ask the question to your uh, supplier just to make sure, because you may, it may be a new supplier, you don't know how the supplier um, is performing his, his work, so you just, uh, due to, I mean, relying on due diligence, you ask the question to the supplier whether organoleptic has been, testing has been done, but it is possible that, uh, and it is possible that it would confirm that, so that means that you can rely broadly on the general test, uh, statement that they have provided, but what we have seen is that typically these broad statements are made without really uh, ensuring that all the aspects are covered, including organoleptic testing. So organoleptic testing needs to be covered by the compliance assessment. Okay. And if this is not clear, you ask the question. So our, I think our marketing department has mentioned that you know all the questions have been sent to us via web chat, and we can get back separately if they, you know on individual questions. If yes. we haven't been able to get to them all today, is there there are so many questions? So. Yeah. So we will get back to all of those who. Uh, who asked questions and on which we did not really uh, respond because we didn't have the chance. So we will uh, communicate separately to those who have uh, asked those questions. Thank you very much for taking the time. Following the, um, the webinar, it was really a pleasure to have uh, everyone connected, even though it's always the frustration with webinar, you don't see anyone except your colleagues. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we may have another webinar on DOCs for China. This is still to be uh, confirmed, but uh, we will let you know. And if you are interested, please mention to our marketing department that you would like to keep uh, receiving our notices uh, regarding uh, our various uh, activities. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.